Welcome to Still Becoming, a podcast about how it's never too late to become more free, more yourself, or try something new. I'm Monica DiCristina, a wife, mother, and practicing psychotherapist. Through my own struggles with my anxiety years ago that led to my professional work as a therapist now, I am fascinated by the process of how we become who we are. We will explore the topics of becoming, of unbecoming, and overcoming through interviews, unpacking mental health topics, and stories. You are not designed to stay the same. Your story is still being written. We are all still becoming. I am so excited and so honored to have author and chaplain June Park on the Still Becoming podcast today. I admire June's work so much. I admire his presence in the world, what we are all learning from him and his writing. We will discuss so many different topics, including his book, The Voices We Carry. I still remember places that I was sitting when I read certain pages in this powerful book. In addition to that, we will talk about his work as a chaplain and what it means to hold space, to hold space for difficult conversations and for difficult topics. We will also discuss the increased violence against the Asian American Pacific Islander communities in this country. In addition to that, we will talk about believing the stories of others and how powerful that can be. This is an incredibly rich, and layered and impactful conversation. And I learned so much from June as we talked. I cannot wait for you to hear this conversation with June Park. June, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. And it's been really fun to see you in person over this video and just to chat for a couple minutes. And I feel so grateful just to be able to have this time together and to chat about all these different topics. Yeah. Monica, can I brag on you just a little bit (laughs) at the top of this? Yeah. You have been so engaged and compassionate and curious and... Am I allowed to cry in the first five seconds well, of was, an interview? I was about to say, June, I'm about to cry. <laughs> I really, <laughs> really. A, you wow. have been so kind and gracious. Oh, and I think yes. everybody needs to know that it, this is not just uh, you reached out to me for an interview randomly. Yeah. Um, you have been just so engaged with not just Asian American voices, but just your elevation and highlighting of all these different important issues. I mean, I love your work. I love your voice. I just wanted everybody to know that. I just want to highlight you for a moment. Wow. And just brag on you. So thank you for for having me. It's like my honor to be here to be interviewed by you. <laughs> June, I um I, I am crying at the beginning of the podcast. Um I I've never had a guest say anything like that and it just um it means the world. I feel really I feel really seen. So Thank you. And and to be honest, you know, it doesn't totally surprise me that you would make me cry in the first few minutes because of your presence and just the way that you hold space. And so I um, thank you um, for that. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> well, with that beautiful introduction that you gave us to this conversation, I'm wondering if you can start um, by telling us just a little bit about yourself. I am a, a husband. Father, 
and a dog dad, I guess, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but also uh, a chaplain. And I work at both a hospital and uh, a nonprofit for the homeless. You know, I retired from doing martial arts about, gosh, six years ago now. So I've been a lifelong martial artist, Korean American, son to immigrants. Uh, I grew up atheist and became a Christian later in life, much later in life. But a lot of my writing and work revolves around uh, being a chaplain. And part of being a chaplain, I think the technical term is I am a non anxious, non judgmental, comforting presence. Wow. Okay. Uh huh. <laughs> yeah. So if I can break that down, you know, when people think of chaplain, I think sometimes movies portray us as like, we're really somber and we walk in with bad news and it's always around grief. And, and some of that may be true. Um, but the difference between a chaplain and say uh, a priest or a pastor or a minister is that pastors preach and they're often giving information. A chaplain doesn't preach, but they're a presence. So we enter in and the patient or client, whichever worldview or system of beliefs that they have that's where we enter into i acclimate into their world with their language and uh, i assume that the person who has questions is also carrying their own answers and so uh, one of the parts i love about being a chaplain and one of the things i found hard when i was a pastor for about seven years being a pastor there was a pressure that I have to impart information. I have to gather numbers, the funding of the church. And there are people that are good at that. And that's their role. That's their calling. I give lots of credit to people who are great at that. But I never really fit into that, that role. Um, I had a hard time just thinking in terms of evangelizing and giving information until someone is persuaded into a certain theological position. Th those things, not that all pastors do that. That seemed to be the main thing that the church was trying to do. How many baptisms can we get this year? How many people can we get to affirm this creed? When I found chaplaincy, oh my gosh. I mean, it's a whole different thing. It's, it's basically how can I be divine hands and feet and really enter in and listen without imposing, without converting, without proselytizing. But rather, I assume that this person, I assume the best of them, that they know already that... Uh, God in them or divinity in them is going to seek uh, what's best for them. And as they tell their own story and as I listen, people who tell their own story out loud, however that's communicated. Uh, I heard Barry Lopez, an author, he wrote, uh, stories have a way of taking care of us, right? So in the telling of the story, there's often healing. And I know that sounds like a catchphrase. But really, when someone tells their story, there's a way of a person solidifying what happened to them, uh, solidifying sort of almost a, a timeline in their own mind that can mentally and emotionally build this infrastructure that makes sense and meaning of their suffering or the thing that they're going through. And if they can see that timeline, then they can see past it and into the future and see possibility. And so... It's a lot of my role is just listening. In fact, Monica, this is probably the most I'm going to talk all day, <laughs> really. Yeah. Uh -huh. Oh, my God. I can relate as a therapist that, you know, I'm typically not the one talking. But gosh, June, the way you describe chaplaincy, um, 
you know, it feels like an understanding even of a posture or a faith practice that feels so much less pushy. It feels like joining. I just, the way you described that you enter their world with their language and you believe that they're carrying answers, it's so incredibly powerful. And you you kind of answered my next question is what is, what is it that this job holds? You know, what is it that you do that there's so much holding space and joining with them? You know, you mentioned that, that you were a pastor before. Did you become a chaplain when you found out this is what the work is like? Or is that part of why you became a chaplain? Or what was that journey like? <laughs> yeah, this is a case of uh, jumping in the swimming pool with before finding out what the water's okay, like. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah uh-huh. You know, Sometimes you can dip your toes in. But right. <laughs> for this, I I left pastoral ministry very abruptly, right before, in fact, uh, my wife and I got married. And so when we got married, I was minus a job. I had the privilege, I had lots and lots of luxury to be able to do that because my wife was working. She's a very consistent and stable person. And God bless her. She endures these <laughs> sudden callings that I get like flying off to a protest or something, you know, she, she supports all of it. And about, I think four months before we got married, I said, I can't be a pastor anymore. And I'm called to something else. So she was, of course, being human, she was scared. Uh, and at the same time was just like, you know, we're lucky. Uh, you, you get to do this and we have a cushion. So go ahead and you know, quote unquote, find yourself. And again, that's a lot of, gosh, that's a lot of privilege, but I was very lucky to be able to do that. And then I remember when I was a pastor, I did like a couple of weeks of ministry with some other, uh, I guess, not exactly pastors, but ministry workers who did uh, prison ministry. And they had talked about chaplaincy and that's how they entered into their prison ministry work. So they talked about chaplaincy. And when they were talking about chaplaincy, just, I remember like tucking it away in the back of my mind and heart. And I was like, man, that sounds awesome. (laughs) I've never heard of anything like that. And I think they use the word parachurch. I'm not exactly sure how to define that, but it's like the church, not the church or outside the church. So it's like ministry that's not inside uh, what we would think of as a church building, right? Uh, But it's still ministry. And so uh, after I got married. I was looking for something. I was I was guest speaking here and there and still making an income, but really very much kind of floating. And then I found that the hospital had a chaplaincy training program that was accredited and all this stuff. And the internship was unpaid. And so I kind of looked at my wife and said, hey, it's not paid and it's going to be like a whole semester of learning. And, you know, in the end, I might decide this isn't it. And, I, and then I'll just go back to pastoral ministry. That's okay with me. The first week that I was in the internship. By the way, this internship, they only select, I think, five people every semester. And then every every year, there's a residency that selects five people a year. So I was very lucky to get in. And then when I got in, my first week in the internship, I saw a patient die right in front of me. And I remember, not to center myself too much, because of course, what happened was awful. And you know, we broke the news to the family and all of that. But I remember thinking as I was a presence for this person, this family, I thought I belong in this room. Wow. You know. I just got chills. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. 
And the way I was able to offer some kind of presence, like that person, that family will probably, they probably won't remember me the next day or remember my name and that's all fine. But the fact that there was somebody there, uh, just a presence for them. And so I knew that I belonged in that room. And six years later, I'm still here. And as hard and as crazy it is, as it is, and to use your word, hold, as much as I'm holding, it's like my honor. I mean, I'm grateful to hold all those stories. I'm a story catcher, basically. Yeah. Oh, wow, a grief, I love that. A grief that. catcher, right? Essentially, I was called in reverse. You know, you go do the thing and then you find out this is it. This is it. You know, I'm so glad you said that too, because I'll just speak for myself and I wonder if any listeners might be able to relate is I can really live in my head. I can live in my head and, you know, just, just for years, it's, a, it can be a problem, but you're describing an experiential stepping into something and then you knew, and I think it's really can be helpful for all of us to name. That's not always how it goes, but that it can go that way, that taking that step, the path can then, you know, open before you and you can feel more sure that this is where you should go by action steps, meaning that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. I think I wrote somewhere is a long time ago. One of my typewriter things. I think I said, mm, the, I love those. <laughs> the, the, the fear of moving forward is often alliterated by taking a step. Yeah. I think I said something like that. I might be misquoting myself, which wouldn't be yeah. <laughs> the first time. <laughs> I feel weird even quoting myself, but yeah, but really, yeah. you know, I, I used to think I have to wait until a meter of courage is filled up. And then after I, I get the courage and the fear is gone, then I can go. But, you know, I, I don't think I believe that anymore. I think it's, we're, we do a lot of things scared and the meter is never filled. <laughs> and there's always that thing dragging at your heels and chasing after you. Like, are you sure? Can you do this? Is this right? Is this the next step? You know, and we can't see one second into the future. We can't. Yeah, and a lot of times it's trying on the clothes before you find out this is the right fit, right? That's right. I love that. I love that. And I I just, I think that that's a message that's really helpful for people to know. Um, even if it's, you know, if you're, if you're struggling with depression, just, you know, putting one foot on the ground or whatever, small, tiny steps um, can help us. You know, as I was reading your powerful book, The Voices We Carry, and I have it right here next to me, I kept thinking so many different things. I kept thinking about the space you hold as, as we're talking about now and in the beautiful way you're describing that and did in the book. I was also thinking about the intensity of being a hospital chaplain during a pandemic. And then I was also thinking about the posture of a chaplain in our hurting world. And so I'm wondering if we can talk about those a little bit, starting with, you know, this could be probably four podcasts, each question, you know, but, but starting with what has it been like to be a helping professional, to be holding space when there is a, a pandemic happening, which I, I don't know how it hit your hospital, um, but I, I'm curious what that has been like for you in this work. Yeah. So first, uh, I want to give a shout out to all the other chaplains who just, they never stopped working. A few of them did catch COVID. I was, you know, very blessed and lucky in that. Well, my wife was pregnant at the time. And so I was given time away from the hospital because they wanted to make, you know, at the time when COVID was new, there was not a lot of information. It was incredibly scary. It still is, of course, but we, we now have more data. 
but at the time I asked for some time away. And so they gave me that. I started going more and more back because I'm part-time at the hospital now and full-time at the nonprofit for the homeless. I've started coming back more to the hospital after my daughter was born, which in some ways, maybe that's more scary. Yeah, sure. Yeah. But I, I missed some of the beginning confusion. But from what I've seen, one is they completely cut off all visitations to the hospital in those beginning months. And so you have people dying from COVID who could not say goodbye. And we didn't have quite the system and infrastructure set up yet in order to have like calls to be able to made through Zoom and all that stuff. Like we were scrambling to understand all of that, you know, because it wasn't quite a virtual world yet. Zoom wasn't a household name, right? And so we're still trying to, they're still trying to figure all that out. And then uh, with the no visitation rule, you had lots and lots of rightfully angry families. Like we couldn't break protocol and we understood that they were angry. But the pressure on the staff, the pressure on the hospital, and then at some point they were allowing like, okay, uh, visitation exceptions, you can have one family in. And then there's the pressure of the patient picking which family. Oh my gosh, impossible. You know, and then the family having to deal with that, like, oh, they didn't pick me or, or even the guilt of being picked. The pandemic affected every level of all the hospital dynamics in ways that we're still understanding and still don't understand. You know, I've been on on the COVID floor uh, quite a few times now, and I've held, you know, that iPad up so that they could talk with their family members. I've seen what COVID does. And uh, I think the other thing that I wanted to say, besides the fact that COVID really, really just shook the entire dynamic of the hospital is, I have this new found, I want to say anger, but something deeper and more sacred than that, or maybe more holy than that. When I see people dismissing COVID as just a cold or a flu, because I've seen what it does and I'm shaking a little bit right now because I'm so mad about it. Yes, I can understand. When I see the, the politics around it, when I see the kind of social media and the back and forth, making it into talking points and it's, it's just become like a, a war of words. I'm just like, come to the COVID floor with me sometime. And my hope is that the empathy and the compassion, it'll just all come surging in and you'll realize I've been talking about real people who are hurting. If they could just see, if they could just see it. And I've seen it and I've seen the hurt. I've seen the families fractured. I've seen that COVID is not just like a regular, you know, quote unquote cold. Oh my goodness, you know. I'm very privileged to be a part of that. And it was a scary time. It still is scary. And one of the things that I got to see was they converted several floors to COVID floors. In Florida, Florida, I mean, has been just a a hot mess, (laughs) you know, in many ways, right? But I got to see COVID floors it would go from one floor and then they would convert to like three floors and then they would go back to two and then three. And every time it would go down to two, we're like, is this it? Is it finally getting better? And then we'd go back to three, you know? And right now it's less than, I think it's like one and a half floors right now or COVID floors or something like that. And so we're like, we're, we're getting through it, but it's just one of those things that causes so much anxiety because you're looking at it. Like, is it getting better? Is it not? Is it getting better? You know, we're counting the number of floors that, that COVID patients can go to. And so it's all a mess. It was all really hard. It still is hard. When people say, you know, when when the CDC made that statement, personally, 
I think it was premature. I know people feel differently about that. I'm still in the hospital seeing what it does. I still think we need all the precautions and all of that. So I'll just say uh, to those who are even doubting a little bit, our common humanity and love for our neighbor ought to compel us for these simple safety procedures. So simple. Uh, to love one another and, yeah. and to empathize and love on people who have caught COVID and remember that, that they're there. And to see them, even if a person says, I don't know anybody who caught COVID or, oh, it's only two out of 100 people that catch it or, you know, one out of 100 that die. Gosh, if one out of any 100 people I I knew died, I'd be devastated. Exactly. Exactly. So just, I guess I'm calling for more empathy and compassion and hopefully putting some kind of eyes on that. Yeah, I so appreciate everything you shared about that. And, And I feel that same, same, whatever we would call it, holy anger you know, listening to this and you're describing the power of seeing people up close, which it's so much of your work, it sounds like, is what people maybe on the internet don't do is is and when they make something a talking point, you're you're living the real life. You're seeing the life lost and the people losing them. You're seeing all the ramifications up close in the human the human flesh of it, and that it's just something that cannot be dismissed as a talking point. They're real, real people. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Your role as a chaplain and then this posture that you have, which is just, or or training, I don't know. You tell me if that's an uncomfortable word. Maybe posture is not the right word. When I read about you, your work, and, and just sitting with you, it's your presence, your openness, your joining one of the things that I that kept striking me and thinking about it is that you hold space for conversations people don't want to have, that they want to avoid, myself included sometimes, right? Like death, regrets, family dynamics, and just the, the power of that posture and you being able to, to shepherd or sit with or just join with people in hard conversations. And I wonder about that in terms of the racial justice conversations happening, the necessary conversations that have been happening forever, but are, you know, getting maybe much more um, visibility that they should have always had. And the increased violence against the AAPI community. I'm wondering, you know, about that sort of posture of holding space for difficult conversations, what your thoughts are about that. That's a, there's a lot in that question. (laughs) When it comes to conversations about death, grief, family dynamics, trauma, all those kinds of things, there's a certain care and compassion and holding that I try to embrace where I assume this person is moving within deficit. They're moving within loss. They have a great need. When it comes to conversations of racial injustice, the person who has more power, the person who is doing the wounding, uh, the person who Uh, does not believe that it's happening. The care that I can offer as a chaplain is not going to be the same as for the person who has the greater need and who's walking in loss. And I think there was a time when I got those things confused because for me, I'm naturally, I default to being a bridge builder. I don't like conflict. And I think part of that is good because I I try to move slowly and, and as graciously as I can. And I'm always thinking like, where is this person coming from? And, you know, what they're saying makes sense to them. So let me enter in to where they are. And so I would con- like, I would get these sometimes awfully 
racist or or hateful things on my social media. And there was a time when I would try to enter in very gently and graciously and try to understand. And I still think that's a part of me and I still think there's value in doing that. But I realized that not everyone has speaks those things in good faith and in, with a good will. And the power imbalance exists. And so now I'm trying to learn the difference between when do I need to build the bridge or when do I need to realize that I'm doing all the building and the other person's just over there waiting for me to catch up. And how can I speak in a way that is truthful to myself uh, in which I am speaking up and out in a way that uh, does not belie justice? Because if I am just speaking in a way that handholds a person who is wounding other people, then really I'm enabling them. And I'm not, I'm not uh, speaking within accountability. I have two minds about this or, or, or even two hearts. And so I'm offering compassion for, for the wounded and keeping in mind justice for those who are doing the wounding. Now, sometimes those people can be the same people, right? We often hear bullies are bullied, right? We often hear that those who are oppressors at one time were possibly oppressed, you know, um, those who are causing trauma have themselves often been traumatized and are caught in generational trauma. But still, those who are exhibiting harmful and destructive behaviors must be called into accountability for that. I can't absolve all the things that I've done or other people do by saying it's all trauma. It could be all trauma, right? For sure. That could be the explanation. But that can't be an absolution. It's tough. So in, in conversations now about race and racism, I think with the last couple of years, I've been more likely to just say, you know, where you're coming from, maybe there's a reason, but I don't like that reason. <laughs> or, or you're just, that's just a wrong point. I'm so glad that you made that distinction and that it, you tell me if, if this is incorrect or, or not, it doesn't make sense to you but that there are multiple conversations happening, you know, and that there's some of the conversations are not ones that are perhaps worthy of your, um, of your time and your energy. If that person's not coming in good faith that, but there are other conversations with people that are getting wounded that are a completely different type of conversation. I think just kind of naming how different the conversations that are being had out there, quote unquote, in the world are. Is that? Yeah. In fact, I'm, I'm so, I'm such a bridge builder and, you know, I'm, I'm such a people pleaser that even now when I get comments where I think this person's being genuine, I'll, I'll engage with that person. And then at some point I'm like, okay, well, nope. It's like, never mind. And then I realize they're that the new thing, they're sea lioning or, you know, they're just acting like they're in good faith, but really what they're doing is they're, they're tr low-key trolling, right? Yes, yes. And so now, there's a point now where it's become an art form, this whole like, I look genuine, I really have questions. Nope, I actually don't have questions. I just, I'm just undermining everything you're saying. So you're right. I've had to expend and exert my energy in different ways. And, you know, there's, there's the, uh, the Daryl Davis school of thought. You know, he's the, the um, black gentleman who, has befriended members of the KKK and he collects the hoods when they give up their KKK-like role and all of that. I mean, he 
has done some, I, I, in my opinion, some great work in entering into those really, really racist, awful spaces. I mean, historical, historically racist. And when the, they call them like grand wizards or something like that, you know, he'll take, he'll collect the hoods once they give it up. He, he's made some waves in changing the minds and hearts of some of these members of the KKK. And for someone like that, that takes a gift and a calling and like a, a, a entering into risk and danger that I don't know if I can do. So there's that school of thought where it's like, I'm going to build bridges so hard that this person is shaken by compassion. And then there are some people who will disagree with that and say, isn't that just enabling or aren't you risking your own life or aren't you, you know, befriending something that, that there's basically kind of a conversation around that where, no, we need to stand up for justice no matter if that per other person comes around or not. We're not doing this for the person who's the oppressor, right? We're speaking for the wounded. So I think there's a part of me that really appreciates and loves that Daryl Davis school of thought. And at the same time, I don't think that's everyone's calling. And I don't know if that should be the baseline. That's an extraordinary thing that he's doing. But I think by far, change has come from those who speak up and say things that are uncomfortable and hard and not just saying things that look like they're polite, <laughs> that look like they're nice, that, you know, that are always going to enter in and, and befriend the other person and, and be quote unquote, hey, aren't I non-threatening? Right. Know? Yes. Yes. Sometimes, mm -hmm. sometimes the noise has to be loud. Sometimes the voice has to be loud. And so I'm learning that. So I think I, I, I'm moving away from the, oh, I want to be one of the good ones or aren't I so gentle? Like if I come off as angry because I'm angry about somebody dying or being hurt, I'm angry. And the people around me can choose to deal with that or choose not to. But I would hope that there'd be enough empathy where people could say, he's rightfully angry. Amen. Yes. So anyway, I'm going to start preaching, but yeah. No, <laughs> I'm, exactly I'm, what I'm I mean, here right? for all of it. And I'm, and I'm listening so hard here and I'm, and I'm wondering, you know, for people that are listening right now to the podcast and, and listening to your wisdom and your insights and the way that you're, you know, sifting through this it, for people that identify as Asian Americans that are listening right now, what would you say to them in regards to um, what what we were just talking about? And maybe that's too broad of a question. Maybe that's unfair. Um, but just to make space for, for different listeners, for listeners that would identify as Asian American and then listeners that are not Asian American. Yeah. I can say this in my context as a chaplain because, you know, my lanes are grief, trauma, mental health. I can say this because you're right that it is so broad and there's, there's the history angle, there's the social angle, but I can take it maybe more from a psychological and spiritual angle in that Asian Americans, when we, when I experience racism, there is a type of racialized trauma that begins to deteriorate a person's sense of self-worth, who they are, and they begin to feel invisible, less than, and then they begin to believe the things that have happened to me are who I am. And this, this is something I've talked about a lot, but I, I keep trying to remind myself, my community, you are not what has happened to you. Uh, it's author Min Jin Lee who wrote a fantastic book called Pachinko. I cried the whole way through. It's such, it's such a good book. But uh, she said on her Twitter recently, the shame of racism is not our shame. It belongs to the racist. So in other words, when we feel shame because somebody says something to us or hurts us in some way, hurts our community, 
there's a shame that we feel because it's like, is it my fault that I bring this upon me? It's because of my race. It's because of who, what I look like. But that's not our shame, right? That shame should be upon the racist. And so when someone experiences the trauma of racism, it has a way of seeping into our bones and creeping into our hearts and telling a story that uh, you deserve this, that you're, you, know, you don't have worth, that you are the damage that's been done to you. And my constant reminder is that we have dignity and we carry the image of God apart from what other people do to us, say to us, apart from how the system has failed us. And so if there's one thing that I can say to, to my Asian American Pacific Islander community, it's that you are not what has happened to you and that you carry a worth and dignity apart from that. And regardless of how much you contribute are you a cornerstone of your community? Are you a pillar of your people? It doesn't matter how much, how quote unquote useful you might be, you still have value. Nobody should have to be exceptional or quote unquote one of the good ones in order to be seen as human or treated as human. And so I think what we see sometimes is in uh, any ethnic community in the West, we try so hard to assimilate in order to be seen. If I can blend into white Western values, then finally, finally, I'll be seen, I'll be known, I'll be okay. Now, and not just now, but historically, there's been pushback against that. And it's the voice of protest, it's the voice of rising up, it's the voice of people living into their identity and saying, I am American and <laughs> I have this heritage and this history where I come from, my ancestors, my, my story is not just my story. It is built on this momentum of thousands, hundreds of thousands of years of history. So as we kind of lean into this identity, um, trauma can strip that away or seemingly strip that away. But what I want to remind all of us is that, you know, we often call ourselves, I often thought of myself as I'm quiet, I'm passive, I don't say much, or, Asians are quiet or Asians are passive. What I'm realizing is that's not true. We've never been silent. When I look throughout history, we've always spoken up, always, both in my own native country and in America. We haven't, we're not silent. We've been silenced. We're not silent. We've been erased, right? That's from external outside forces. And so I just want to remind the Asian American community, you do have dignity and worth. And for those, to answer your second question real quickly, for those who are not Asian American, um, perhaps not a person of color, there's so many different things I can say, but I'll just say one thing. And again, this is in the context of, of being a chaplain. When you hear someone's experience of whether that's racism or brushing up against misogyny or nationalism, any of those things, believe that person. The power of belief. I mean, the thing that I, the two responses I get is, you know, oh, that didn't happen to me, you know, and in parentheses, therefore it never happens, right? And then the switch, it'll go to the other extreme where it's, oh, that happens to everybody. You know, that's not because of racism. It's not because of misogyny. It happens to everybody. And you can't have those two statements exist like side by side, right? But those are the common responses. And so long, I, for, for so long, I've just wanted someone to see me and believe the story that I was telling. Like, no, believe me, you know, like, the words China virus have hurt our community. I know that the word 
microaggression, that's a loaded word. And, you know, some people say that doesn't actually exist. All aggression is aggression. I think I believe that. And also some people believe microaggression, you know, is not a real thing. Oh, you're just reading into it too much. I'll just say this. I have experienced, whether we call it microaggression or macro or, or just aggression, I have felt my soul under the death of a thousand cuts, you know, dying daily. Just the looks that we get. And, you know, that's not to include the actual major acts of violence and hate crimes that we're seeing. Absolutely. It's just the questions and it's just the, the, the strange comments and it's just the awkward, cringe-inducing, like, otherizing that happens, right? And so when I share those stories, sometimes I get disbelief and it's like, oh, that's not a big deal or, oh, that's fine or you're being sensitive and all of that. But what I can say, this is just one of the many, many small this is a small thing we can do. Offer the gift of belief. Yes. It's such a powerful gift. Yes. Wow. Thank you for sharing all of that. And I agree with you. We are never the expert on someone else's experience. And I just, <laughs> wow. Yeah. You know, I, it, it baffles my mind. Um, but yes. And thank you for sharing all the parts of that, that you shared. Um, you kind of, you know, went to my next question. So I'm going to, I'm going to pivot then to, you know, um, talking about your book and and as you were describing the thousands of years of of history and of voices and that they weren't silent <laughs> they were silenced and thinking about your powerful title the voices we carry which I know holds so many different things but I want to pivot into that book and um, if someone is listening and and this is a really big question because you actually wrote a book on it. So, but if someone is listening and and they are wondering, gosh, that even that title, it's such a powerful title resonates me. I wonder about the voices I carry, whether it is, you know, my cultural heritage, whether it is uh, my family of origin, where would you have them compassionately begin to just dip their toe into exploring voices that they're carrying with them? So my mind immediately went to, gosh, Everybody is so different, right? And maybe that answer is a cop out, but no, really, everybody is so different that, you know, here's where I, I can tell you where I began. Where I began in finding, maybe this is a cliche statement, we almost called the book Finding Your Voice. And then I just thought, well, you know, I think there is a, a book called that. And that I, it's a simple idea. And I love the idea, of, co- of course, of finding your voice. But really, to just speak plainly, just to say the words, in finding your voice we find the other voices that have crowded it and interrupted the voice that we have, that we hold, that we want to be, uh, that we are individually made to be, right? So when early on in the chaplaincy program, when I was sharing my story of childhood abuse, trauma, and all that stuff, I didn't know that the things that I went through were traumatic, before I went into the program, I didn't know about ACE scores and all that stuff, you know, adverse childhood experiences. Didn't have a good understanding of what trauma-informed care is, much less trauma. And so as I started sharing the story, we had group time, we had one-on-one supervisions, we had reflection times, you know, because the, the program is like, we're half on the floor and then we're half together doing classes and education. So this was a year and a half we did this, you know, the six-month internship, year-long residency. One of the supervisors looked at me and said, you know what happened to you was not okay, right? I tried to do that thing where it's like, I think I can speak for myself, but I've noticed other 
ethnic groups slash minorities do this where it's like, oh, we don't call it abuse. You know, we just call it our, what our parents did was discipline. And then what we went through is not trauma. It's just like, oh, it's just what everybody goes through. You know, it's just like, we've all had a tough time. We carry baggage or, you know, I, I've been through some things. I saw some stuff, you know, so I tried to laugh, laugh that off and said, oh, you know, you know, you know, like I just grew up like everybody else did, you know, that kind of thing. And she looked at me and said, you know, what happened to you is not okay. And uh, I realized as I kept trying to laugh it off, I was weeping. I, I didn't know. I just started crying and I realized I was holding a lot of trauma. And so I think for me, where I began was, you know, peeling back the layers of the things that actually happened to me and acknowledging that was traumatic. That was hard. And so I think in finding our voice, we, we, we can start by looking at the voices that have interrupted like our voice trauma, which is the effect that occurs from a negative debilitating event. I mean, that has a way of speaking for us, of becoming us mm, in some mm-hmm. ways. Yes. Right? Yeah. 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 So for me, that's where I started. And maybe for many, that's where they, where they, they can start. Gosh, the way you describe the, in, the interrupting and um, that trauma. So whether even like we were talking about before, racial trauma, and then more specifically family trauma, right? Or trauma that happens in a school. There's all different layers of traumas too that can happen to, as you said, interrupt our voice or what our voice is trying to become. It's so powerful. There's family trauma. There's the, like you said, the racialized trauma. I mean, there's so much bullying. And I do want to at least just say this, that Sometimes when we think of trauma, we may think of it as a big thing, like a car accident or an illness, something devastating, but it could be something small and an accumulation of quote unquote small uh, things. I mean, it could be something that a third grade teacher said. It could be something that you heard as you were going out the door, very innocuous, you know, harmlessly, a family member said something and it just stuck with you. And And it's that narrative that keeps repeating in your mind, I had a youth student a long time ago when I was a youth pastor tell me as a joke, something like, uh, I think there was one Sunday I bombed the sermon bad and the youth student came up to me and said, yeah, that's why you'll never be a good pastor. Mm. And, and, you know, it, sure. it, it was a joke, but it, sure. got, it got lodged in my, of course. In my head. Yes. So yes. There are little traumatic things that can happen, events, little one-liners, little things like that, that, you know, it doesn't have to be so hard and heavy as we perceive, you know, trauma to be in like a movie or a TV show. It can be these little small things. And it's painful work to get through that. Not just the trauma, but all these different narratives that we believe about ourselves and all the things that we believe, whether that's uh, certain, what I see now happening is a lot of misinformation being, being thrown around, right? And there are groups that are built out of this misinformation so, so like nationalism, uh, for example, QAnon, some of the conspiracy theories, all that to me is just really scary and terrifying. But even peeling back those things, and I even want to ask some of those folks, like, what led you to that? What led you into wanting to find, and a lot of that's probably because they, they wanted a group identity, they wanted to feel like they belong somewhere, they wanted to fit in. So I think what they believe in, what they're you know, perpetuating is wrong. And at the same time, I have some empathy. And then it's like, you wanted to find some kind of mission or purpose. And if you, if you look at the, the psychological stats on hate groups, 
a lot of it isn't, you know, oh, I started off wanting to hate everybody. It's really, they build their groups by identity for group identity formation, right? And a sense of belonging and a sense of mission. And so I, I saw a list somewhere. There's like four reasons that psychologists say hate groups are built around. And I think one of them was this almost like holy sense of mission. Like we're bringing a sense of grandness and goodness to the universe. That's scary to me. Yeah. yeah you know, yes. and at the same time, I can empathize with that because who wouldn't want something like that? Right. Even though I think they're going about it the wrong way. And so all these different voices, just peeling them back until we get to here's here's the divine voice that I have. Right. The empathy that you just sit with and that you present is is so compelling. And I I imagine that so many people listening will will resonate with gosh, there are so many things burying the voice that I have, you know, or they're, or wanting to go on that process. And, you know, as I, I nerdily sent you page numbers, right, with questions, but one of, one of the ones that kind of piggybacks on what we're talking about here is there's this line in, in the book that you wrote that um, maybe it was your supervisor that said to you, I'm not sure if that's the right term, and she said, but what if you were in a place to never fully live into yourself until now. Yeah. I just I had to put the book down. It was so powerful. It just jumped out at the page. I think it spoke to, you know, obviously I was having a personal moment too. And um, just the power of that compassion that all these layers of voices, all these experiences, we want to become our fullest self, but but we're not ever starting with a blank slate. You know, so I'm wondering if you can talk to us about this idea of people wanting to find their voice or become whoever it is that they want to become. But there's a lot of things playing into the timing of that and, and maybe your own experience with this phrase. Gosh, yeah. So that was, uh, that was from my supervisor in, in the book. I named her Audrey and I still work with her. She's an amazing person. Helped me really to rediscover who I am helped me to reach back into my Eastern Asian roots, all of that. First, I have to say this, and I feel like I always have to say this, uh, and it's a healthy reminder. I have the privilege of being able to be in a place where I can live into myself. Not everybody can, right? And so because of you know the culture slash society, et cetera, that we're in, sometimes we have to be in places that we don't like with uh, doing things that we don't necessarily enjoy, uh, in order to make a living, we have to be in spaces where the systemic forces are so oppressive that it's like, I'm just trying to do the best that I can. I know I can't change the system, but I, you know, but wherever we're at, wherever we're, we're at, whether that's in the West or out in, you know, somewhere else, there is, I think, still a way that we can enter in with our core non-negotiables. I guess I'll say this too. It's like in the book, you know, it's the same person, Audrey. She asked me what my non-negotiables are. And that was so helpful in finding my voice. And I kind of listed them out. And then I sort of asked the reader, like, what are your non-negotiables? You know, and it's something I never thought about before. It's not a new idea. It sounds so obvious. But to actually sit down and like workshop that out for yourself, you know, <laughs> it takes time, right? It sure does. But I, I'll say this in two ways. One, I think we can find those non-negotiables and realize that kind of um, we each have this, I guess, divine core part of us that is me, right? So when my wife and I look at my baby daughter now, she just turned 10 months today. Oh, wow. So, such a fun age. Yeah, yeah. 
sometimes we play this game where if if our daughter acts out, I'll look at my wife and say, hey, that uh, that seems like you. Right. <laughs> and other times she'll look at me and she'll, uh-huh. my wife will say, hey, that's you. Yeah. Uh-huh. And then other times we'll look at each other and go, nah, that's neither of us. Right. You know, like, <laughs> sure. and there's this, there's this original core of her, right? That, that how, however God made her, that's not my wife. That's not me. It's, it's her. It's, it's so, it's all her, right? And we each carry that. And I think, uh, society at large and, you know, uh, culture at large can suppress that in us and put us in places where we expend a lot of emotional labor pretending to be someone we're not because we have to, right? So here's the two things I'm trying to say is we can have our core non-negotiables, but then also have a little bit of grace for ourselves and that we're not often in places that we can live into who we are. And we're hard on ourselves for that. Sometimes people think like, well, if I take this job or this role, I'm selling out because I can't say these things. And if I say that, I'll be fired or, you know, I have to adhere to this code. And each person has to decide for themselves what that boundary looks like. And where can I step in and then try to make waves and changes inside the system, but also in my knowing that there's probably an expiration date where at some point I realize for myself, this place is not changing. I can't make waves in it. I got to take my core gifts and calling somewhere else. So hopefully I'm, I feel like I'm answering your question in a very confusing way, but. No, I, I think it's a very powerful way. You have this incredible way of, um, of both and, and sort of modeling a both and thinking and explaining it for us, you know, that, 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 you know, yes, there are some non-negotiables or a core identity that you're made with that is sacred and wonderful. And the realities that um, so many of us might find ourselves in seasons or in long term being in places or spaces or societies that pummel that, that don't support that, right? Just that both and of the grace of what you're having to live in and through. Yeah. Yeah. Can I give you a quick example? So yes, please. I, you know, guest spoke recently at two different churches. And one of them was a space where it was harder to say the things that I had to. And it was the same week or maybe within the same month in which the shooting uh, occurred, the, the horrific hate crime at the you know spa in Atlanta. Uh, but I was in a church where I knew if I said words like racism or misogyny or hate crime or, or even uh, white supremacy, if I said those things, they were probably likely to cut off the mic or something, you know? And so I framed the message that I spoke in a way where I thought this crowd uh, can hear it. And part of me thought, am I selling out? You know, like, am I bending to the whim of this place? And then another part of me thought, I want to build a bridge. I I want to be able to, you know, work within the system that I'm given. Uh, I want to be able to make waves, but if I, if I say it in this way, they're already going to disconnect, you know? I still wrestle with that. I believe that I spoke truly to myself and I spoke courageously and I did use some of those, I did use quite a few of those hard words, you know, and, and those phrases and those concepts. But yeah, I, there, there's still another part of me that thinks, gosh, did I bring all of myself in there? And if I did bring all of myself in there, would I have even been heard in a place like that? So it's a balancing game between can I live fully into myself And can we ever really always, you know, and how do we work within the system that we have? And I think about like, 
you know, these great activists and advocates who they had to operate and navigate within systems, especially as they got into upper levels where they can actually make change like at the government and political level. I'm sure they had to make these compromises that they didn't like, you know, that they're thinking, gosh, I, this is not in line with my values, but this is the 1960s or 1980s. And this is the system that I'm given. How can I, you know, operate in this space? And then I preached at another church where I felt much safer to preach. Even there, sometimes I, I feel like, am I just repeating things that everybody already believes? And in all these spaces, there is a fear that if I live into myself, I, I won't be heard, I'll be rejected, I'll be cast out, or you know, I won't actually emphasize all the right things in all the right ways and, and that kind of thing. And even when we're in, in our own crowds, there's a fear that we can get something wrong. Right? Absolutely. And, and there's no, even in like my own community, there's no consensus about, you know, this is the way things ought to be. Some Asian American, you know, even family members don't believe that we're experiencing racism. So it's hard to have those conversations in those spaces. But still, I am a, people can disagree with this, but I firmly believe we work within the systems that we're given. We push as hard as we can push and say those uncomfortable things. But I am still willing to extend an olive branch always 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 extend a hand and build a bridge i mean that's maybe that's just me maybe that's just how i'm gonna be but i want to fully live into myself knowing that there's a way to move with gentleness and pause and, and you know that's not to press down on anybody else's expression of how they do things you know but for me at least i want to live into my identity fully and be mindful of the people around me and to be gracious to them and to know that sometimes the things that I, I say are new and a shock to the people around me. And so how can I navigate that with gentleness and yet continue to remain true to who I am? But I think one of the things that you do in, um, is that you, you tell me how this lands, but you have this incredible ability to pull these ideas into the complexity of life. You know, there's these, there's these beautiful, powerful ideas of your core values or, you know, the in, inherent core of who you are. And, and then also the difficulty of that. We're not always in spaces that, that are encouraging of that, but you pull that down into the complexity of what a daily choice could look like, which will look different for each of us too. Absolutely. The, the different things that we would face in any situation. So I think it's just amazing how you do that. And I, and I appreciate you sharing that. Yeah. One of my other supervisors calls it contextualizing. So she doesn't, she doesn't like the word compromise, but she says, how can we contextualize ourselves to where we're at? And that doesn't mean we give up who we are but that we are being mindful and compassionate of the people around us. Yeah. And, and just like as a listener to you right now, just that you model such, um, such, a, such an ability to think of all the complexities of what we as a human might face. Again, that would be different for each of us as we try to pull these beautiful ideas from your book into real life, that it's going to be complex and difficult in church A versus church B or whatever the examples are. Yeah. I do want to also be mindful of those who enter into spaces where they realize at some point it's not going to work. You know, and I've stayed in places long past the expiration date when I should have left earlier and realize this place is never going to hear me. I'm never going to be able to build bridges no matter how hard I try. And it's okay to walk out and to say, not here, 
somewhere else. Yeah, I appreciate you saying that. And I appreciate you just showing all of us that are listening, whatever our own story is, that that's a, that's a personal call and that's a yep. personal boundary. And that I felt the same way as I read your book, that you um, you never shy away from the complexities of of a, of an idea or of, of how messy it is in real life for us to put in these, these ideas of, you know, staying true to our voice is messy in real life. We all live in the gray, right? Or hopefully we, (laughs) that's how life is. I mean, as much as we might want to make it one or the other, it's, it's always going to be in the gray, right? Final question that I ask everyone at the end of each conversation is what is a person, event, or experience that helped you become who you are today, who we're speaking with today. So Monica, I knew you were going to ask this question. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. And I was thinking so much about it. And I want to tell you like this bizarre story that I don't think I've told on any podcast or written anywhere. Okay, so I was in high school. In high school, I just started to, and I could trace this back to trauma. I, I started drinking very young. And I had a big problem with alcohol. I quit in my 20s and became sort of abstinent since then. If you saw my social media, I recently talked about how I had a relapse uh, last year. You know, and that's been after about over 10 years of sobriety. In any case, I, in high school, I, it was a problem. And I think I missed like 84 days of school in my senior year. You know, in school, like, you know, American school, it's like about 180 days. And so I missed a lot. Um, and I remember driving out one morning when I was missing school, you know, I wasn't hanging out with people. I was just by myself. Yeah. <laughs> uh-huh. I, I just wanted to be alone and I didn't want to go to school. I didn't like it. You know, a lot of that because of the racism, a lot of that because like I just wanted to be by myself. But uh, I was driving this one morning and I drove to a place that my family used to live at. We moved around a lot. You know, we we're in Florida, but we moved to a lot of different places. Went back to a place that we used to live at. And there was this, on the street that I lived on, I hit the brakes because I saw a squirrel in the middle of the road lying on its side. And it was still breathing, but just lying on its side. And, you know, squirrels, when you approach them, they just scatter, right? But this one wasn't moving at all. So I went out of the car. I noticed it was still breathing. And I went to pick it up and put it in the passenger side uh, passenger seat and it was breathing and it looked like it was dying and so what i thought was i'm going to spend the day with this squirrel i'm going to give this squirrel a bath try to give it some food and water maybe possibly nurse it back to health but it didn't look good went home the apartment was empty i was living with my dad at the time and gave the squirrel a bath gave the squirrel some water, was out in the balcony. We had like this tiny, tiny little balcony in the apartment. It was like a second floor thing. And watched the squirrel breathing its last breath, you know. Held the little squirrel's hand, as dramatic as that sounds. It doesn't. It's beautiful. And at one point, you know, sun was down on us, you know, trees, leaves moving. I was looking at the squirrel and I just, you know, I think I called him Jimmy. I don't I don't even know if he was a boy or girl, but called him Jimmy and try to started talking to him about like, I didn't know what I want to do with my life. And I was constantly suicidal and I was just trying to drink myself, you know, to forget everything. And just started confessing all this stuff to the squirrel. And the squirrel just kind of was looking at me, you know, the whole time. The squirrel was very gentle, never, never tried to bite or anything. 
And I went back inside to use the the bathroom, went back out. Squirrel was gone. Oh my gosh. Yeah. The squirrel was gone? Gone. When I went back inside, it went out. And I, I, I walked around the entire apartment building. And of course, you know, Florida is full of squirrels. I probably would never would have, you know, sure. found but, them. But, whoa. But uh, he was gone. Wow. And I just thought, I don't know, did a predator get him? Or was he able to just get up on his own and leave? And if he could get up on his own and leave, did he just decide to stay with me? And so that squirrel was the first chaplain that I ever had. Yes. Wow. And I guess I was in some ways maybe a, a, a chaplain to this uh-huh. squirrel. Uh-huh. But I've never gotten over that that event. I, I it's so it's such a bizarre, weird, quaint story. Uh, that, yeah. Know? I mean, I I but, yeah. <laughs> I feel, you know, emotional listening to it. It's such a powerful story. And it's such a powerful story that that speaks to this unexpected moments and to the power of presence that you, you were that for the squirrel. And then the squirrel started being that for you. And if you remember in, in my book, I told the story about how I found like a bird and then, uh, you know, try to take care of them. I've, I've had these weird encounters with animals over the years. And I have a dog now who's a rescue dog, but it just seems like, God can speak to us in so many different ways through nature, through animals, through people. And since I think one thing that taught me was not to miss those moments, I could have just kept driving, you know, and just decided here's the squirrel. I'm just going to try to give him a good last day. Yes. Yeah. And you did. That's so beautiful. Thank you for sharing that. I really appreciate it. Well, um, June, it's just, you know, I've been so looking forward to talking to you and it just is, it's just a pleasure just to be in your presence and, you know, just to, and just to hear, um, your wisdom and your thoughts and just, and just the way you just pull in your full humanity, which just makes it really comfortable to be fully human with you too. It's, it's a really beautiful thing that, um, the way that you hold space, it's just, I feel like you brought such a gift of that to this podcast today. So thank you so much. It's just really, truly an honor. Yeah, I appreciate this conversation with you. And I I thank you for your work and for your voice. I hope you enjoyed this conversation with June as much as I did. And I trust that you, like me, are walking away with so many different insights and so much wisdom that I hope will help all of us continue to learn to hold space for one another in the ways that June describes in this conversation. I'm still reflecting on how he described listening to other people's stories, that he enters into their world and enters into their language, and that he believes they already hold the answers. This is such a powerful idea and posture that I think all of us could adopt as we listen and enter into each other's lives. If you would like to learn more about June and all the work he's doing in the world, to follow him online and to find his incredible book, The Voices We Carry, we will have everything linked in the show notes. Thank you for listening. For more information, please visit monicadcristina.com where you can sign up for my regular newsletter 
or follow along on Instagram. You can find me at Monica DeCristina. Please rate, review, and subscribe to Still Becoming wherever you listen to podcasts if you like what you heard here today. This episode was edited and sound designed by the team at Sound On Studios. You can find out more about their work at soundonsoundoff.com.